0: How likely is it that you'll be the victim of a violent crime in your lifetime? That's a much harder question to answer than you might think. First of all, we can't just rely on police reports. Only 43% of violent crimes are ever reported to law enforcement. According to the most recent National Crime Victimization Survey, your odds are a lot lower than they were in 1990s, which is good news, but they're higher than they were in 2017. Of course, the odds also depend on where you live, your age, your gender. In what you do, but one thing is clear violent crime doesn't just impact the victim. On average, every person who is murdered leaves behind three people who loved him or her and whose life is forever changed by what happened. There were 16,214 homicide victims in 2018, but there were also 50,000 grieving survivors left behind. Welcome to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic and clinical psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on the psychology of violence. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Chris Mohandi, a clinical, police, and forensic psychologist who has met and evaluated some of the most dangerous people on the planet. Welcome to the show, Chris.
1: Hey,
2: thanks, Joni. It's nice to be here.
0: It's certainly nice to have you. No two offenders are alike, but you talk in your book, Evil Thoughts, Wicked Deeds, about some of the things that a lot of violent offenders have in common. So tell me about some of those things.
2: Yeah, while no two offenders are exactly alike, there are common themes across violent offenders, not the least of which is somehow in their psyches, it's acceptable to use violence as a problem-solving method. And I think that what goes hand in hand with that is a tendency towards the externalization of blame that's part of making that acceptable. So there's there are some common threads and some common themes. You know, the justification uh, for violence is part of it. And typically that means that you know, somebody caused me to do this, and therefore, you know, I'm justified.
0: So where do you fall on this whole nature versus nurture debate in terms of violence? Because there's all this research coming out about the biological roots of violence, and of course, we're always looking for childhood factors that may have contributed. You just talked about some coping strategies or some psychological traits these offenders might have. So I'm just wondering, what do you think about some of these biological theories about violent behavior?
2: You know, this whole nature versus nurture debate is one that I've encountered since undergraduate, probably just like you, Joni, and it's a fake debate because at the end of the day, you know, it's most often going to be a combo platter. I mean, some criminals are born and there's a small percentage of those and some are made, you know, or exclusively they've had shaping influences, you know, in their lives. But most, there's some sort of intersection between those two things. And at the end of the day, you know, free will is in there. And for most people, there is an exercise of free will that is part of their decision to become violent. Because let's say you look at nurture and childhood experiences and so forth. You know, the most common thing is the so-called abuse excuse. Oh, he had a tragic childhood certainly there are terrible childhoods that people experience but most people transcend those like if you were to look at the data as to how many people have been physically abused emotionally abused degraded it's horrific you know how commonplace that is relative to our population but what's inspiring is that most people survive those experiences transcend them vow that they won't do those kinds of things and they break the cycle It's the exceptions to that 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 catch our eye and say, aha, you know, look at it, poor guy, didn't have a chance, you know, when in reality, for everyone that maybe makes the decision to yield to the dark forces that they may have experienced or identify with the aggressors in their life, there's a multitude more that didn't do that.
0: Two parts of that are really interesting to me. One is, it does seem like it almost creates a perfect storm for some individuals and particularly we're talking about serial offenders or serial killers because you're absolutely right for everybody who's had a horrendous childhood experience there are plenty of people who've overcome that and even use that experience to help other people and to right. try to try to advocate for people for this never to happen to them and then you find people like a serial killer Samuel Little who certainly started out kind of behind the eight ball and yet there are people who've had a worse life experience and so it is kind of heartening on the one hand that we do find so many people who are overcome these, but it's also frustrating because it's so difficult to pin down who yeah, I mean, are, you know, them, who are those individuals who are not going to transcend that.
2: There's a couple dimensions to this, Joni. I mean, one is the nature versus nurture question that you posed to me as to which, you know, and uh, the other component of that though, is where are you coming from? Determinism or free will? And uh, and I think that's, you know, a very important question to ask, you know, where one is coming. And, you know, frankly, people have choice. You know, even a guy like Little, if you use him as an example, you know, if the police officer was there and there was a victim of opportunity or choice, I suspect that he does not have so much determined trajectory to perpetrate, you know, abduction, torture, sexual offending and killing if that if there was a cop there he would do it and that speaks to choice and free will you know because for most people hey you have a cop there they're not doing it true
0: Absolutely, and I think that's an interesting, interesting point because I've heard that argument used so many times that, you know, when people talk about this compulsion or addiction to a certain crime or to a certain violent behavior, and you're right, I don't think I've ever come across a situation where there was a cop there or there was a, you know, 99% chance of getting caught and that person continued to follow through with that behavior. So there was clearly some self-preservation at the least.
2: And And choice, decision cost-benefit analysis, yeah, I like that victim, perhaps the offender is is thinking to themselves, and then they look at the circumstance and say, you know what, yeah, that's not working for me in terms of my need to uh, self-preserve, as you put it, Joni, uh, not get caught, not get hurt, not go to jail, not be held accountable, and those become important variables as we hold people responsible for their conduct in our society. It is interesting and informative to learn about the trajectories that can shape who a person is and what they become. But to say that it's a determined destiny and fated, I don't know that I necessarily would fall into that camp because I've talked to a lot of these guys and they may see it that way. But at the end of the day, you know, there is choice and there's freedom and there's responsibility, whether you want to accept it or not. On the other hand, there's people like Herbert Mullen, you know, a guy that I interviewed uh, a number of years ago, killed 13 people in California over a number of months back in the 70s. And he's in a, you know, an unusual type of serial killer that I'm sure you've come across, but he was absolutely delusional. I mean, he believed that if he didn't take human lives, that a cataclysmic earthquake would cause California or a significant portion of it uh, to fall into the ocean and that by sacrificing people when the voices would tell him to do so, that that would stave off and prevent you know, these cataclysmic events from occurring. So he had schizophrenia in all likelihood, may have been induced by his mass quantities of LSD and other things he was doing you know, back in the day, but uh, make no mistake, he, he was delusional. At the same time, despite you know, being delusional, and that this wasn't for joy or for um, the power or thrill of killing people, he still made decisions. He still took efforts to avoid being detected. He still was monitoring, you know, whether law enforcement was staying on top of it. So as you probably discussed in your earlier show in terms of the prongs for being held criminally uh, responsible, you can still be delusional, know what you're doing and know that it's wrong and take efforts to evade detection and know that other people see it as wrong. Yet, you know, there's a mental illness of a significant proportion driving that behavior, and that would be Herbert. Malt. Still, many years after the homicides, when I interviewed him, he said, "You know, you know, things like telepathy and all this. For all I know, they don't exist. But that's a hypothesis. So, even still, years later." He wasn't quite sure if it was real or memorex. You know what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely, and I definitely want to talk about the role of mental illness in violence in general. But I do want to ask you, what are your thoughts in terms of are there ever mitigating factors that you think should be considered? And I'm not talking—I'm not talking about mental illness per se. I'm talking more about life experiences or early childhood trauma or whatever. For example, in the penalty phase of a trial, or even in terms of arguing for a lesser uh, charge
2: those are factors that are provided to jurors in consideration. And experts like you and experts like me will come in and we will identify those factors that may exist so that the jury can make that decision. The problem I see is that when experts become too partisan and they highlight one side and then completely ignore the other, and that might be a case where I've seen like, oh, they talk about the poor, tragic childhood, but they're ignoring all the opportunities that the person just said, screw it to, as far as availing themselves of help. The fact that many other people that have had those issues have not yielded to those um, impulses or, or urges, and that the expert may have ignored that the person's an antisocial personality or a psychopathic individual who's, who enjoys hurting other people. So there can be some distortion, I think, that comes up when that information is gathered and presented. And thankfully, there's typically multiple experts that come in and and then the jury can kind of hear it and decide what's the balanced uh, or most accurate picture of the person. So, I, I hope I've answered your question, Johnny.
0: Yeah, you definitely have. And I think you make a lot of good points. Obviously, these some of these decisions are up to the jury or the judge to decide. And I do think that a good expert witness should be able to present facts fairly and balanced. Yeah. No matter what side is retaining him, both of us know that in reality, sometimes that isn't the case. No, that, it's, and, it's, you
2: know. Not, it's amazing the stuff I'll see. Like, I'll see an expert coming in to do a so called social history and all they're doing is gathering stuff to highlight one particular thread when they have the ability to gather other information that really helps form a more complete picture of the person. Mm-hmm. And that can happen both ways. I interviewed the Grim Sleeper and in, in another serial killer in LA. I've interviewed a, a, a number of these guys. And there really wasn't anything... Too bad in that case, in terms of background information or whatever, I testified about you know what was going on with him and the personality issues that you can glean from behavior and history. And then a guy like Joe Paul Franklin, who I talk about in, in Evil Thoughts, Wicked Deeds, I interviewed, uh, he's no longer alive. He was sentenced to death for some of his crimes. He's the guy that, he killed like, I think 23 people over several years. He's the one that wounded and paralyzed Larry Flint. And he was a racially motivated, you know, I call him a racist serial assassin. He meets the definition of serial killer, although he objected to the term. He preferred the term multiple slayer because in his mind, a serial killer is more sexually motivated like the Ted Bundys. Those were his words. And uh, he had some challenges growing up. I think there may have been some abuse and that kind of thing. But he's the one that gravitated towards hate and He's the one that gravitated towards the Ku Klux Klan. At some point, he embraced ideas, and he became a violent true believer. And, and you know what? He's responsible for that. We had a, a decent rapport when I met with him and when I corresponded. But, you know, th- there was an ugly belief system that he, he embraced. And he was antisocial. He was narcissistic. He was probably psychopathic. And then you, you collide that with a with violent true belief system and boom, you know, you, you've got the horrific things that he did over several years.
0: One thing I definitely would agree on is that no matter how bad a person's childhood is or how tra- traumatic it is, when you look at somebody's life history, you, you do see these turning points and these decision points in their life. Totally. And, you, and you clearly see kind of forks in the road where this person could have gone one way or the other. And so, you know, whether there's a a lasting impact of trauma in childhood, I think there's probably a lot of research to support the fact that for some people there is a long lasting trauma, but you're right. I think that there's, there's enough time and enough options and and enough decision points along the way that it's very difficult to say a led to b.
2: It's, it's, it's multi-determined. How do you account for the fact that the vast majority of people who have these experiences, don't kill people, don't torture people, don't rape people, don't, don't exploit and hurt people. Does it relate to that person's trajectory? It might, um, but there's usually other variables that go there. Like one of the common themes that I talk about in terms of some of your more organized offenders that we see across many offenders, and I'm sure you've seen it too, Joni, is the, is the thirst for omnipotent power and control over, over life and death over other people and that unhealthy relationship or coveting of, of the desire for power over others. And it, it's, it's really an interesting kind of, of, of hunger yearning, if you will, that, that, that is another connective tissue to many of the more egregious crimes that we see.
0: It is. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Chris Mohandy on the psychology of violence.
1: Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked. But a new, easy-to-swallow sleep gel, invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell, is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free 2-night supply of REM Sleep, visit healthycell.com/sleep. That's healthy c l l.com/sleep.
0: One of the things that I think is really challenging for us as forensic psychologists, I've gotten so many emails and phone calls with my psychology day blog as well as this show from parents who are seeing angry children or violent children.
2: Yeah.
0: And not knowing what to do. And I just wondered, you know, what your thoughts are. That certainly is a potential. Point in time where if there are these kids who are showing clear signs of uncontrolled anger or violence in school or at home, where well, that ought to be a, a point to intervene to see if we can at least stop that you know trajectory
2: I think um, you're right on the money with that. I think that you know the earlier we can recognize a potentially unfolding trajectory and get effective treatment to somebody. And, and you know what, when I say treatment, I'm using it in the loosest possible intent, because I have another book that I wrote years and years ago on school violence. And I, I talk in there and I still do this day that, you know, just having one person that cares about you and gets you, that's kind of a healthy sounding board can make all the difference in the world. And that's not always a therapist, man. It might be a pastor. It might be an older brother or sister. It might just be somebody that you have you as the as the child or the teen has declared, "I trust you, you're my go to person, and it just takes one of those for a person that might be you know having some problems that that shows that kind of of love, but is in the context of that of what I define as a form of love it is not going to sugarcoat things and just say dude, you need to that's wrong what you're doing, you know like that's not okay here's how you should maybe think about it. And if it's the right person that you got a rapport with and that you trust and you respect, there's a malleability at certain points in people's lives. And it's not always youth, you know, It's, it's like moments, you know, turning points. And so for the parent or caregiver that's seeing this, sooner is better, effective, has a lot of different definitions, not always defined by a profession. And not all anger is the same. I mean, like you could have a person manifesting anger, kicking their door in their room, slamming a door. Yeah. I mean, probably most people have done that. But then there's kids that are doing stuff that's like kind of diabolical, (laughs) you know, like getting other people to hurt other people or, you know, super sneaky stuff that's, that's kind of different than the normal sneaky stuff kids do. Like, you know, I got a kid and he's gets into the cupboard and he gets into the sweets or something. I mean, most kids do that. I did that. <laughs> you probably did it, Joni. I mean
0: <laughs> I, Yeah, I, I did. I can fast. I can fast. I wanted to <laughs> give
2: me a cookie. Okay. Well, that's a little <laughs> different than, yeah, I was over at my friend's house and I decided to take, you know, a gun. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, so there's also kind of a realistic sense of of knowing what's normal and what's not. And you know what? It never hurts to get another point of view. From somebody that's a professional. So, if I have a word of wisdom for parents, it's like when in doubt, check it out, run it by somebody that knows something. And, you know, I don't know that Google is licensed, but it doesn't hurt to Google stuff. We all do it. But, you know, go a little further than Google if you're really concerned about somebody.
0: I, I agree, because I think there is a ton of confusion about what are those danger signs or what are those risk factors. Yeah. I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote an article one time about homicidal thoughts. And, you know, the question was, have you ever wished somebody was dead? Have you ever been so mad at somebody that you just felt like killing them? And so many people wrote in and said, yes, yes, I've gotten so mad at somebody that in that heat of, of anger in that moment, I just felt so mad that I had that thought. But none of them said, I started planning to do it Totally. Or I thought about it over and over again. Or it was my favorite thing to think about when I was masturbating going to bed at night.
2: <laughs> the, that would be pretty unusual. So those
0: yeah, those
2: are some nice differentiating distinctions uh, between something that's like maybe occasionally happens and what takes it to someplace else. I do a lot of interviews with people, a lot of clinical interviews, and I have as a standard question that I ask people is, have you ever seriously thought of hurting anybody? I have another question is, what's the worst thought that you've ever had? And I got to tell you, it is not very common to get that response like, yeah, I have. It's probably one, one in 500, maybe one in a thousand will say that they actually have had that thought. It would be a great study to do more formally than my, my clinical sample or your sample from an article you've written where people have decided that they want to respond to you. It, it, it occurs, but it's not as common of a thought. And then when you start getting to the other aspects of it, how far did you go in your mind with it? You know, that's when you really start to see, you know, uh, the, the narrowing uh, of that population. Um, you do. I love, I love that question. You I do
0: and you yes. do, and you do find different percentages and this is no big surprise to anybody in different populations so i was oh, yeah. re, i read a study recently that said that 12% of inmates in you know medium or maximum security prisons acknowledged that they had had homicidal thoughts toward somebody more than once. So yeah. you're right. If you're asking somebody in the general population, even in a general clinical sample, you and I would not expect and wouldn't get the same response. That but we it's but get. it's help, but
2: it's so helpful to to have a foundation in a non custodial setting or a broader population um, upon which to base your sense of what is normal or not. Because if all you're looking at in a, an offending population, I think it. I think it interferes with kind of understanding, wait a minute, that's not so normal. The other question I always ask is I'm sure you do is you ever thought about hurting yourself and have you ever, have you attempted, have you ever tried it? So these are, these are interesting things. The other thing I always ask about in my, in my clinical uh, work, that's not forensic in, in, in nature is have you ever, was there, did you experience any violence or abuse growing up? And that's why I know that most people that have these, apart from the research that's out there, but that's why I know that it, you know in my bones that most people transcend these transcend these experiences. Because let's say one in twenty or one in fifty or one in a hundred people have experienced witnessing domestic violence in their homes, or their parents thumped them around a little bit, or you know degraded them, or you know maybe as I've seen sexually abused, you know. I've seen a ton of people that have had those experiences, and a very few of them that have acted out aggressively or are anything but good uh, law-abiding you know sensitive people who, if anything re, 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 retract from anything that reminds them of that so I, I think that there's that it's good to be informed by what the broader world experiences are and yes it's terrible that a lot of people have had these things but you know it's 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 inspiring and it's relieving that most don't go there
0: you know i'm so glad that you brought up the whole issue of self-harm or suicidal thoughts because one of my questions for you for today's interview was to ask you how you thought you think that forensic psychologists or psychologists in general, how our our conception of violence has changed over the past 20 or 30 years. I know when I was in graduate school, there was the common belief that if somebody was suicidal, they would not become homicidal. Oh my God. (laughs) It was, yeah, it was the either or, right? You're either, you're an internalizer or you're an externalizer. And if you're an internalizer, you might hurt yourself, but it makes you so much less likely to hurt other people. Now, of course, you and I know that that is absolutely not true.
2: Yeah. So, Joni, you're, you're such a great question and such a reflection that you've made upon the nature of our profession is a living, growing organism, you know, and evolving in what we know. And some of that evolution is evolving out of ignorance, and some of it is evolving out of the evolution of these things. <laughs> so I will say that the, that the idea that there's these two, that, that people that, you know, that are going to do it aren't going to talk about it. You know, they're just going to do it. You know, that was <laughs> ignorance because, you know, we we now know and by the way, before I start talking about suicide, I'm going to say what you're probably going to say. Um, I'm going to beat you to the punch. If you know anybody that's feeling like they want to hurt themselves or having any suicidal thoughts, please call you know the, the National Suicide Hotline or your local crisis line. These are difficult times that everybody's going through, and especially for you know maybe people that have a few, few more things going on. So if you're having any suicidal thoughts or you know somebody that is – please reach out for help. There is help available. It can make a difference and this too shall pass, but get help. That being said, one of the, one of my favorite books, which is horrible to say, is a book called The Suicidal Mind by Schneidman published in 1996. you familiar with this book? Yes. Yes, I am. It's probably one of the best, best written books on the subject of suicide. And Schneidman um, was a suicidologist from, La- from Los Angeles. He, he literally studied hundreds and hundreds of completed suicides. We don't call them successful. They're com- right. if a person unfortunately completes a suicide, that's what it is. And, and it's an unfortunate thing because it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Be that as it may, in his study, he identified 10 commonalities of completed suicide. The f- one of which is the communication of intent. So people do talk about these things before they do them, and it is important to, to know about that and to attend to people that may be talking about it. And when I hear people say, it's just a gesture, or it's just this or it's just that, well, I'll also tell you this. I studied in my, from my police psychology background, I published the largest study of suicide by cop that's been done. We looked at 707 police shootings and found a rate of 36% of those could be deemed suicide by cop, meaning that the person engaged in the behavior they were engaging in with law enforcement, either real or apparent danger, in order to get themselves shot and killed by law enforcement as part of their part of their bid to commit suicide. This, in our study, we found almost an identical statistic of, of almost 90%, I think it might have been 87% communicating intent to somebody at some point, you know, that they, that they'd had suicidal thinking. So, you know, that's, the fact is, is that, is it, you know, it is communication of intent is common. The other commonality of completed suicide or suicide is hopeless, is, is the feeling state of hopelessness. That's the most common emotion. The most common perceptual state is constriction where they can't see the forest through the trees which is why we say don't do anything because right now you're not thinking like you normally do you're focused on this one negative thing and when you're feeling better after you've gotten some help because there is help out there you'll be able to see the force through the trees again and so that cognitive state of constriction will will relieve you know will be relieved so those are a few of the commonalities and what we what we know about you know about suicide but it's you know it's a huge issue the other thing that we've learned you know, is that is not, not all or even most suicidal people will hurt others, but in the, in the suicide by cop population, we found that one in three would actually hurt others in the course of their, you know, suicide attempt at the hands of law enforcement. So the idea that we've come across is that some suicidal individuals are more likely than the average person who has not had any suicidal thinking to also have contemplated acting out towards others. So there is significant overlap between the two populations. But I want to be very clear. Just like most mentally ill people won't hurt somebody else, but certain people with specific kinds of symptoms will. Similarly, in suicidal population, most suicidal people won't hurt other people. But I believe if you were to take a population of suicidal individuals and compare it to those that have never contemplated it, that you'll find a statistically greater likelihood that some of those people will have contemplated hurting others because it's the same variables that get a person to think that the solution is self-harm that can get people to think that the solution is harm directed outward and that's
0: absolutely uh, yeah. and I know we find that to be the case also in domestic violence perpetrators oh, yeah. so yeah, when you have I the mur- you have the murder <laughs> yeah well you you have the murder suicides right yeah. there's oh, a, yeah. a significant you know minority of them who are are batters Right. And, so, you know, the murder-suicide just becomes this, uh, the ultimately and tragic solution to a history, often a long history of battering and controlling somebody else. Right. Um, I had so many different thoughts when you were talking, I'm not even sure which way to go, but I, you mentioned what tough tough times that we're living in, and I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are about how the quarantine or stay-at-home orders and Close proximity is affecting violence,
2: right now. Well, um, I think you've already had a show about that—that that there's been an uptick uh, in DV and child abuse and other forms of violence where people are in close proximity, just because situations that were bad aren't going to get any better by putting those people together with with no, you know, ability to go out. You know, without drawing a lot of attention to yourself. So there's, there's like, it's more of a. So you've got the confinement with a potential abuser because the abusers aren't changing who they are.
1: <laughs> yeah. So
2: you've got the confinement. You've got the added pressure and stress of whatever that person or persons in that household might be going through, and then you have, then you have a number of agencies that aren't being you know, as responsive to like child abuse, for example. Like I know in some jurisdictions, I won't mention them, <laughs> but they're not taking on any new child abuse cases um, under the current COVID-19 conditions. So what, it, what does that mean? There's no new cases? Highly unlikely. I mean, you know, that's not true. You've, you've seen some data already. So I think that this situation that we're in, for the people that already have bad constellations of variables in their households in the, in, the, in the form of a person or persons that are aggressive and that resolve their problems through aggression, you have controlling DV types that are using this as yet another vehicle of, of subjecting their people in their household to even more egregious abuse. You know, we're going to see all that stuff coming out of the woodwork It's already starting to come out of of the woodwork. And that's the downside of it. The upside of it is that, you know what, America in particular, and a lot of other places, I think we're going too fast. And a lot of us were losing touch with what's really important. And we're running from one activity to the next. I've got a teenager and from day one, you know, this generation has been pushed and you know, accelerated, do this, take this language course, join the club sports, do this, do that. And one of the, the positive things to come out of this thing is for many people is the first time, you know, families got to stay home, they're getting along, they're enjoying time as a family, they're slowing down, they're maybe seeing greater priorities. And so it doesn't have, to, my point is, Joni, it doesn't have to be all negative. I've been hearing from a lot of people that You know, apart from the, you know, the people that are suffering economically, and especially those that are suffering from physical issues and and loss, that there are a number of positives that one can extract from this experience in terms of reestablishing priorities and maybe keeping a few of the things for after this, hopefully, you know, starts to dissipate.
0: Well, it's certainly given us. All some breathing room to evaluate our priorities. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Chris Mohandy on the psychology of violence.
1: AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. As we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. Well, should a news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? With blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio.
0: I did want to shift gears a little bit because you had talked earlier about suicide and you and I both are familiar with the suicide literature in terms of people tend to talk about it before they do it. And they tend to experience some certain cognitive and emotional symptoms um, that are temporary, but can be perceived as permanent. And that can be, you know, make it more likely for that person taking action. How often is that true with violence? In other words, how often do people make threats or talk about hurting somebody before they actually do it?
2: Well, it depends on the population, like we studied mass murder, and we'll talk about mass murder and school violence, we'll talk about mass murder and school violence. We've done scientific studies uh, of those two populations and found that it can be anywhere from three quarters to 75% um, for those two populations will have actually engaged what we call leakage. Leakage is the conveying to a third party, or sometimes the intended victim, more often to just a third party, the, the idea that they may be thinking about harming somebody. So it's relatively common. A little less common is to communicate it to the intended victim, okay? That's in mass homicide, and that's in a school violence, for example. Now, that's one of the things that we teach organizations to be vigilant for, like in workplace violence, school violence, People that are involved with keeping our community safe from, you know, individuals that might be wanting to uh, perpetrate a mass casualty event, those kinds of things. You start looking at, and a lot of this stuff now is in social media. Like I've had a number of cases now that the tragedy has been averted because it was clear that they were moving down that violent pathway because of what the teens or young adults were posting you know, for example, on, you know, it could be Twitter. It could be, you know, other, other social media um, outlets. It could be by email. I'm trying to think Foursquare. There's been Tumblr. You know, I've had one case where they were like in all this different social media. And, uh, you know, you could, you could track, you know, their, their, their violence trajectory. One, one um, offender, a couple offenders in Finland, for example, school offenders, were all over YouTube posting videos with their ideas, you know. And so, so that's one set, one population of offenders. But let's say you look at like serial murderers. Yeah, not so much they're going to be telling people what they're going to do. What you're likely to have is, you know, kind of like when they're trying out their new behavior or a, a victim gets lucky enough to escape maybe early in the series. And it's just kind of like, yeah, he tied me up. And it was like he's going through a ritual with me and, you know, and, and I escape. I think he's going to kill me. You know, like you get these you get these early victim experiences when maybe they're practicing or you know with a paid you know person in the sex trade or something like that that you might get some leakage that is not talking about it necessarily but behavior that's like wait a minute let's take a harder look at this person stalkers you know if we look at that population that's uh, a population I did a study like a thousand of them we you know you might see some threats in that population, especially amongst the ones that end up doing something. And you know, from DV, cause you've, sounds like you've studied a bunch of them. You know, some of them you just look at the pattern of what's going on over time, you know, in terms of behavior that's escalating or the kinds of behavior they're willing to engage in. Sometimes they'll say something to the victim about what they, what they're going to do. You might, you might see that kind of leakage, but a lot, a lot of times that behavior is very, emotion or affectively driven. And so, you know, you look at and see just, you know, how, you know, how out of control they've been, you know, and, and where is this heading? Is there a firearm in the home? You know, those kinds of things. So I'd say that it depends on the population, you know, what, what, what the indicators might be um, beforehand. Did I answer your question, Ron? Yeah,
0: you, you, you definitely did. And, you know, one of the things that came to mind as you were talking is, you know, you and I both know that the vast majority of violence is reactive in nature. It's impulsive. People are angry. There's an argument. Right. And somebody somebody gets her or it's a robbery, and it goes wrong. You know, it, it, it happens in the situation.
2: Garden variety. That's your garden variety. Your garden
0: variety. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you're talking about serial killers, or you're talking about serial rapists, sometimes you're talking about domestic violence perpetrators. What do you see psychologically as differences in individuals who are more likely to commit reactive violence or impulsive violence versus predatory or premeditated violence?
2: You know, the problem is you can have people that, that like, you can have an antisocial personality disordered individual who is a, you know, a psychopathic, and he's he's a freaking he's engaging in predatory violence. He's out there hunting victims and killing them and rape raping and killing them or whatever. But which is which which arguably is predatory violence. And then you know that could be the same dude that's in a bar, and somebody's talking shit to him, and uh, and, and next thing you know he's kicking their ass. <laughs> like, you know, so yeah. I don't know that you can have in this, you know a given individual could engage in both types of behavior. Um,
0: Absolutely. At a different points. So
2: so, you know, yeah. So I, I don't I don't I don't know that there's gonna necessarily be, be like one person that's more likely to be engaging in predatory violence and another person's more likely to engage in affective violence, the distinction that you know my my colleague and friend Dr. Reed Malloy created and published and, and, and talks about, you know, you can have a person that engages in both, and you have to look at the circumstances of a particular episode of violence to determine what it actually is. That being said, you know, if you have a very impulsive person who is you know, very emotionally reactive as a, you know, as a rule and just doesn't seem to have good you know, kind of inhibitions, maybe using you know, drugs that disinhibit or accelerate aggressive impulses like alcohol, methamphetamine, respectively, that person, you know, may be primed to to go off at any moment in what would be referred to as an instinctual or reactive, you know, immediate form of violence. But that same individual can become locked on to somebody else and say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna get them, and may still be able to engage in in kind of a vindictive plan of getting even that is uh, predatory. So that becomes you know, the, the difference. You may find, I guess my point is, Johnny, is, is that you can find people that are more likely to engage one or the other, but those same people can still still get involved in, in either.
0: Absolutely. I, I think what I was thinking, Chris, is I worked in a maximum security prison for a couple of years and I worked on the crisis unit and the assessment unit. So I saw a lot of different mentally disordered offenders. Yeah. And it was interesting that so many of the men that I saw did seem to have like impulse control problems, anger problems, just an inability. No, I mean, no, no matter how self-defeating it was, you know, I mean, a, a custody officer was kind of pushing them or whatever. And even knowing, the consequences. It was just like an inability to control that behavior or difficulty controlling that behavior. Like some basic life skills had, were just missing in and, and, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and so many, not all. And then, you know, every once in a while, and certainly not the majority, I would come across offenders who just felt different yeah. and they just acted differently. And, and, and you know, and, and again, I'm not I'm not saying there's these two categories that are mutually exclusive, for sure, because I definitely have seen individuals, and there's lots of studies to support that, that certainly when you have somebody who might be a psychopath, for example, they can engage in all different kinds of violence, depending upon what is going to get their needs met the quickest. But I I did, you know, it did seem like the the individuals that I saw and, and treated and evaluated who were truly scary in some ways you know, was with was, was more people who were more premeditated and thoughtful and how they interacted with custody officers, how they interacted with the criminal justice system, how they interacted with other inmates.
2: Right. I agree. I think you can pick up the, you know, kind of psychopathic, you know, the cunning, you know, he's up to something and you never know what he's quite up to because it's, it's not always just right there. But you know, by history, you know, what, what he or she is capable of. And, and yeah, there's plenty of those kind of disinhibited, those disinhibited types that go from zero to eight, you know, zero to 80, you know, you know, like that. And those are the ones that are, you know, very reactive to custodial staff, other inmates, you know, and there's plenty of, you know, behavioral data points to support that versus somebody else that's a bit more shrewd and Machiavellian, you know, about how they engage and indulge in what they do. And, and, and yeah, you, you do, you can see those kinds of distinctions.
0: So let's talk about, you alluded to this earlier, and I want to kind of revisit that and talk about it, the whole issue of violence and mental illness in general, yeah. because I find that still seems to be one of the most misunderstood relationships Particularly among people who aren't psychologists or attorneys or judges or you know in that in those kind of professions. What are your thoughts about that?
2: Which part of it, uh, Joni?
0: Just in terms of you know talking about what is the role of mental illness in in violence. I know it can be a lot of different things. We've already thrown around a lot of different terms like antisocial personality disorder or psychopath. And I think sometimes those terms kind of get lumped together when I think oftentimes as forensic psychologists when we're looking certainly to evaluate criminal responsibility we're not looking for a psychopathic diagnosis we're looking for a more severe mental illness as some you know somebody who is delusional or psychotic at the time of the offense yeah 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 and everything seems to kind of get lumped together sometimes
2: yeah you know the vast majority of people that have mental illnesses whether they be you know obsessive compulsive disorder or, you know, some sort of uh, psychotic or thought disorder like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, or a mood disorder like depression or bipolar disorder, the vast majority of those individuals, you know, are functioning. They get in a little problem in their life here and there. I don't mean little in a little sense, but they're not engaging in criminal behavior or hurting other people. But they're, if you were statistically to look at, you know, people with active psychotic symptoms, you know, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, you're going to find, and then drug, and, and, and then drug disorders, you know, addiction. The statistics seem to bear out that they are more likely um, to engage in violence. But carefully, the experts that have done these studies um, will point out that, yeah, that's statistically, but most of these individuals don't do anything to hurt anybody. And they're just trying to, you know, live with their, you know, live with their illness. So, you know, what I see in populations of of violent offenders that have mental illness is I've seen the bipolar um, disorder represented. I've seen a schizoaffective disorder represented, a schizophrenia. And, in, and it's not just, the, it's not as a whole where you, where I've seen it, you know, relevant is like in Herbert Mullen's case, the guy that killed 13 people, where you have a delusion that, that, that mandates, you know, people's lives to be taken to avert some harm or because you feel mistakenly that you're being mistreated and, and going to be harmed. And, and where you have voices commanding you to do these things. In the, in the example of the bipolar, you can find that some of these people are so reactive and have such a hair trigger that that can become part of it. Or like I had a guy, I don't, I don't talk about him in my book, I don't think, The the rainbow man used to go to all the sporting events with the rainbow colored wig and the John 316. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that guy. He would show up uh, at these events with a rainbow colored wig, uh, the sporting events, and the John 316 shirt on. And he, he believed the end of the world was coming and that it was his job to draw attention to that. And that's why he would show up at all these sporting events. Well, when his mental illness became worse, he was very bipolar, exacerbated by his chronic marijuana use. He ultimately came to the conclusion that he needed to, to do something dramatic to get attention and get you know, a worldwide press conference. And that's when he took hostages you know, at the airport Hyatt hotel. And I was part of the hostage team that, that went to take him and try and talk him out of it, take him into custody. But you had a delusion where he felt like he was, he was trying to save people and that the violence was a necessity. Another case was Demacio Torres, who went into the crowded emergency room at USC Hospital and shot three doctors. You probably remember that case. Mm-hmm. And then he took, and he took hostages in the emergency room. Uh, fortunately, nobody was uh, killed, I don't think. Not, not that day. I don't think anybody's died yet from the, the lasting impact of their injuries. But he believed that they were doing uh, medical experiments on him and that they had injected him with a mysterious AIDS-like virus, and that he literally was rotting from his insides out, and they were just waiting for him to die. And so rather than just take this, he was gonna get even with them for doing that. So you have a fixed and false belief a delusion that involved you know, persecution and, and, and somatic delusions, coupled with a, a belief in that he was justified in exacting his revenge. So that becomes, you know, so you've got multiple variables kind of coming together because not everybody that believes they're being mistreated feels like they need to act out against the person mistreating them, right? Right. (laughs) So those would be a couple of examples of, yeah, mental illness for sure. But I I would uh,
0: agree that it's not so much the diagnosis. Yeah. The symptoms. It's it's the the very specific specific symptoms that seem to be linked. Very specific
2: symptomatology that that convinces them or, or instructs them that they need to do something violent to resolve whatever it is that's in front of them.
0: You know, I've only come across a few individuals who I felt met the legal criteria for insanity. And what was interesting to me about both of the cases I'm thinking about is number one, they did have these command auditory hallucinations or getting very specific instructions. I think one of them was having kind of paranoid or persecutory delusions, another one was having kind of religious delusions. And there was one gentleman who was just driving down the road, and he'd been symptomatic for, you know, off and on for a number of years, and he was actually taking his medication, but he was either on the right dose or it wasn't the right medication. It was right after 9-11, and he's driving down the road, and he looks over and happens to see a man wearing some kind of a headdressing. I don't even know what it was, and he hears his voice telling him that this man is going to the San Diego airport to essentially blow up more airplanes. And so he runs this guy off the road and then proceeds to ram his car into this poor man who's, you know, has no idea what's going on. There's a happy ending in that nobody was seriously hurt. And there was a million witnesses, as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. this is on the highway. And, you know, there it, and is in a lot of cases. I think one of the myths sometimes is that there's these dueling experts. Oftentimes in these NGRI cases, and you know, one person is saying he's totally sane, and the other person saying he's, you know, completely insane. And and and, and again, it, more often than not, I think you know, defense and prosecutors actually agree because the facts in this case were just so clear. that um, he had a preexisting history. He was actively symptomatic. There was, you know, no multiple witnesses, family and friends days before that, that he was symptomatic. And there's a situation, and what, what, what interested me in that case, and not so much that case, but the other case is that this gentleman who did end up acting violently is seemingly as a direct result of his psychotic symptoms, Had done so many things to try to avoid acting aggressively. He had gone to the police. He had written letters. He, you know, in other words, you know, it almost surprised me that it hadn't happened before that. But I think he, in his mind, thought this was a last resort. So he had done all these other things in his mind to attempt to prevent this horrible event that was going to happen. So, right. some, so sometimes I've, I've had the impression in evaluating people who have been actively psychotic and had some of these delusions or command auditory hallucinations. Oftentimes I've almost, I've, I've admired the fact that even when they're having these really serious symptoms and scary symptoms, how oftentimes they creatively try to avoid acting violently. And that, that, you know, it can come after they've done all these other things to try to, you know, try to get it resolved other ways.
2: Right. Totally. Totally.
0: Well, we are almost out of time, but I just wanted to just ask you, as I do everybody, just in terms of looking at violence, one thing we didn't talk about that I do want to just touch on before we end up is we talked about, the, you know, the quarantine and the potential escalation in at least interpersonal violence. I don't know how familiar you are, Chris, with some of the decisions or the quandary about letting out inmates. As a result of that, and there's been all kinds of media coverage, and...
2: Here comes the crime
0: wave. You know, well, what was interesting about that is I, you know, can see both sides of it, and I was reading a bunch of things, and then I actually came across a list of uh, Rikers Island inmates who were getting ready to be let out, and I was reading through this list, (laughs) and I was absolutely shocked that a woman that I had read and written extensively about, and this was somebody who had engaged in attempted murder, very premeditated. And as it turns out is also charged with a murder in Russia and kind of escaped over here under false pretences was on that list. And several prosecutors in New York wrote letters and, you know, she was taken off the list and there, there was a whole outcry about Gary, the Ridgeway, the, what who was he? The, the, um, I'm kind of blanking here. Green River. The Green River Killer, exactly, was, quote, almost let out. So I'm just yeah. what a, I mean, what a, this is an unprecedented situation. And from a violence risk assessment perspective, what guidelines do you think they should be using in terms of letting individuals out?
2: Better, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they should be using better guidelines. Uh, <laughs> you know, just because somebody's convicted of one crime, like a particular designation, they really need to look a little, you know, a little deeper because a lot of times there's pleadings, as you know, and so they pled from something else, and what they're convicted of may read as a nonviolent crime, but it's but it was a violent crime, they just happened to plead into something else. So, I think they need to be more mindful of that, like in California there's As you know, some of the things that have been considered a nonviolent crime are stalking, and we know there's a lot of violence that goes on in stalking having sexual offending on a non conscious person has been considered a nonviolent offense according to <laughs> to, to uh, I think our former governor as they, as they sought to let people out so I think they need to tighten up their definitions of it, and I think they need to look a little harder at you know do a, a more thoughtful assessment of what that person's done what they've, you know, what, what, they, what their, their, their history really is, what their history of the institution was, and what they're going to do when they get out, because are we just kicking them loose into nothing so that they have to reoffend potentially, because there's no support structure. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that need to be done to make sure it's going to minimize the, the, uh, the crime wave, which is probably coming.
0: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, and I have about 500 other questions that I wish another I had time. time and time. I know. Yeah, I know.
2: Thank
0: you. We'll have to definitely have you come back on the show, but I always ask guests at the very end. If there's one thing that you would want people to remember from our interview, what would that be?
2: It's never too late to get help for yourself or somebody you care about. If you're worried about somebody hurting themselves or hurting another person, or if you feel like you need to get help, it's never too late get the help.
0: Well, that is a great positive note to end on a very kind of difficult and sometimes grim subject. So I again want to thank you, Chris, for coming on. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. You're listening to Threat of Evidence, and we'll see you next time.